And now, for your feature presentation. One, or two, or three, or four, but five, force five. Hello and welcome to the Force 5 podcast. As always, I am your host, ex-video store clerk, wannabe screenwriter, and fellow listener, Jason Kleberg, and it's time to collect your pogs and tickle me Elmos. And turn down those Backstreet Boys, because we're headed back to the 90s today to talk top five 90s teen films with Sirius XM Radio's Kyle Anderson. Before we get Kyle in here, let's talk about some listener mentions from last week, and I've got reviews for a couple of newish films. So last week's topic was kind of a a weird one for the audience. It's almost like people aren't exactly sure what an exploitation film is, and I can see that. It's kind of one of those genres where you, you just know it when you see it, and it's tough to nail down exactly what that means. Uh, but we did get a couple of good suggestions here. Joseph Bridges said... Um, and, and he mentions this too. He said, uh, hard list since exploitation can be both broad and limiting, but he's got Alphabet City. Ooh, recently put out by Fun City Editions. A great one there. Smithereens, Light Sleeper. I think that's the Paul Schrader movie. Putney Swope and Dead Presidents, which, um, you know, could be considered an exploitation film and one of my favorite shit, probably one of my favorite movies of all time. Still not available on Blu-ray. Come on. Uh, Bruce Perky says Coonskin. That's a good one. The Your Next Favorite Movie Pod says, and that's YNF Movie Pod on Twitter, said, I'm not well versed enough on the genre to give any real picks, but he did mention Death Wish for the Crackdown, which absolutely counts, so good pick there. And we also had mentions of Miss 45, Maniac, Basket Case, and the Hardcore Collection of Richard Kern Shorts. So uh, again, a bit of a limiting topic, but I still appreciate the social media interaction and again, if you want to get into the game, at Force5Pod on Twitter, at Force5Podcast on Instagram, I ask this question every week. Let's talk about some things that I've seen this past week, starting with one of the newest Marvel films that I had not seen yet, 2021's Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. Throughout my life, the Ten Rings gave our family power. If you want them to be yours one day, you have to show me you are strong enough to carry them. You are a product of all who came before you. The legacy of your family. You are your mother. And whether you like it or not, you are also your father. I told my men, they wouldn't be able to kill you if they tried. Zhu Wen Wu, owner of the famed Ten Rings, starts hearing the voice of his wife asking him to come rescue her from an ancient civilization in a different dimension. Obsessed with setting her free, he involves his children, Zai Ling, a Chinese underground fighting legend, and Shang-Chi, a San Francisco parking valet with a mysterious past. I should start by saying that I'm a big fan of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and I was a fan of the comic books as a kid, but I'm unfamiliar with the character of Shang-Chi. I had no idea who he was until this film was announced, so this review will come from fresh eyes. If you're a fan of the character, you've probably seen this film already, so I guess that doesn't really matter, but I didn't have a connection to the source material. Overall, I like the movie. I think there are a lot of good things going on here. First, it's cool to see a Chinese protagonist in a huge Marvel movie, and I'm glad to see some more representation on display. 
I hope that it has the same impact that it seems like Black Panther did with young folks itching to see some positive role models that look like them on screen. Part of that representation is Tony Leung, who I'm a huge fan of from his previous Hong Kong work, and he was acting his ass off here. He was a really strong villain, which I think is often a problem with the Marvel films, but I bought his motivation, and I liked his arc, and I was pretty satisfied with how everything unfolded with his character. Of course, when you head into a Marvel movie, one of the things you're looking for is some great action, and this film did have a lot of action. The bus fight, which you've probably already heard about, was absolutely fantastic. I loved the brutality of it, along with the beats of genuine humor. The downside to a fight scene like this is that it happens within the first 20 minutes of the film, and then nothing else compares to it for the rest of the runtime. There's a, uh, a scaffold fight that's pretty cool, but as you might expect in a film that deals with magic rings and mythical beasts, the final fight scenes feel so large and fantastical that it can turn into sensory overload with the amount of CGI on screen. The smaller scale fight scenes resonated a lot more with me because seeing throwback kung fu moves mixed with a dash of Marvel magic was actually really fun. As for the plot, I thought it was fine, but as I've said before on this show, I'm kind of over the whole, and if we don't stop the bad guy, the entire world is doomed kind of stories. As Marvel films usually go, the final battle is full of faceless creatures fighting an expendable army with a hero in the thick of things going up against a big bad boss. There is a pretty great callback to a character from Iron Man 3 that I did not see coming, and that rectification was pretty great, especially for those who left Iron Man 3 disappointed in the way that the plot played out. The rings were way cooler looking than they deserved to be, which is a testament to the spectacular VFX crew that worked on this. Shang-Chi was funny, charming, and had a ton of great special effects, but the story didn't really leave me wanting more from this part of Shang-Chi's life. As a character, I think he and his powers are pretty cool, and I'm excited to see him as a bigger part of whatever the multiverse arc brings. I'm also excited to see what his sister does with her new venture as well, as we see in the post credit scene. I liked Shang-Chi overall, but I didn't love it. It's definitely entertaining, and I can see myself gladly watching it again when my kid is old enough to comb through the Marvel back catalog, but I will probably wait until then to watch it again. The other thing I saw this week was Edgar Wright's Last Night in Soho. Baby, you don't know what you're saying. So what brings you down, then? I'm studying London College of Fashion. Right, Room is on the top floor. It's perfect. I love it. If I could live any place and any time I'd live here. In London. In the 60s. Last night, I saw something in my dreams. Ellie moves to London's West End to enroll in fashion school. After her dorm room setup doesn't work out, she rents a room from an old woman, but upon hitting the sack, finds herself in the head of a 1960s nightclub singer named Sandy. As things in the past start getting worse, Ellie has to figure out if what she's going through is a dream and unravel a mystery from the past. Last Night in Soho is a visual feast. The feel of 1960s London is so meticulously crafted and looks amazing. From the cars to the garb, it really roped me in. It's also filled with great lighting effects and some wizard-like camera work on display. Part of the dream sequences, as we'll call them, have Ellie and Sandy living in the same headspace, so we might see Sandy in the present, but see Ellie in the mirror, and it's all done so masterfully. I'd love to see how this was done on the Blu-ray special features, although I know that kind of insight is a bit of a rarity these days in physical media. I really hope that that's included on the blue. 
The craft that went into the making of this movie is top-notch from every aspect. Every frame truly feels like a painting. I don't think I'll ever see a shot as cool as the giallo-esque shot of a knife plunging into somebody's chest as we see somebody's reflection in the steel. As for the mystery itself, unfortunately, I have to say that I did not love it, and the sweater only unravels as you start thinking more and more about it. Something about the trips to the past and the rules of said trips just didn't hit for me because they are inconsistent. I also didn't buy a lot of the character actions because in that regard, the script felt kind of lazy. For example, there's a character named John that I just call Young Cheadle because of his resemblance to the man, Don Cheadle, that has the hots for Ellie, and he seems like a good dude. Now, from the minute he starts hanging out with her, she starts freaking out, having panic attacks, and going crazy while he's trying to make out with her. And of course, we as the audience know what's happening, but this dude, John, does not. He doesn't know what's happening because any time he asks her to just talk to him, she's running out of the room screaming bloody murder. So my first question is like, why is John sticking around? A lot of the things in this movie could have been solved by just not running out of the room screaming. Like, just have a conversation with people. Uh, there's another there's a there's another example of this guy walking around the neighborhood. His name's Hansy that again could have been wrapped up with one short conversation that goes as far as like what's your name? There's also a weird subplot with this band of art school mean girls run by their own little Regina George named Jacosta. Jacosta is seemingly a bitch just for the sake of being a bitch and has zero redeeming qualities. If you'd left her out and her subplot out of this film, it really would have made no difference. I also thought that the end, well, uh, kind of clever, was also pretty poorly executed. Last Night in Soho is a film that I'm kind of at odds with. The performances are fine, and the film looks fantastic, but I really didn't love the story, and the characters all just kind of seemed dumb. The third act finally delves into the more horror-centric side of things, and I did not think that part worked at all. A lot of the negative reviews I've read online play into two categories. Either they thought the film was sympathizing with rapists, which it was not, or the plot was, quote, too woke, which it wasn't. Also, if you describe anything as woke, please promptly fuck off. The film did not sympathize with the rapists if you were paying any attention to the ending. I've heard a lot of really weird takes on this film, and it makes me wonder if a lot of people are just stupid or if it really could be interpreted in many ways. I was under the impression that the theme was really trying to shatter the rose-colored glasses of nostalgia and to show you that things in the past weren't any better than they are today, but again, I'm a simpleton, so what the hell do I know? This is where I want to go to some other reviews around the globe. Frida or whatever says, I rated it half a star for Anya because this movie was just a pile of garbage. Edgar Wright needs to stay away for making movies that have to do with women because he knows absolutely nothing about them. Thank you, Frida or whatever. EDLC1970, this is from IMDb, this one says, This movie doesn't make any sense? Some country girl moves to London slash Soho to become a fashion designer, and suddenly she's another person in another time age. Digning, I think that means dining, and dancing and falling in love. It doesn't make any sense? It's certainly not a horror movie, it's a drama and a musical, but a weird and boring drama musical. And now we're just having fun, as Quen Chow says, This film start with a girl Eloise dancing, and she talking with her grandmother scene. As turnout, this film is about to find out the mystery of the character of a singer Sandy. That's it. Wasting time to watch. Thanks, Quen Chow. Okay, so clearly Quen Chow was at odds with her words. And I gotta tell you, as a podcaster, you gotta be able to speak. And to be able to speak, you need to be awake. And if you need to be awake, there's really only one drug of choice. 
No, not cocaine, silly. I'm talking about coffee. When it's time to wake up, skip the chains and get your cup of joe from Mocha Joe. Joe got his start serving coffee on the backlots to the Hollywood elite and worked his way out of serving those entitled bastards so he could serve us, the peasants. Hot coffees, lattes, mochas, Joe has it all. And if you want something to eat while you sip your glorious bean water, he's also got scones that are just the way they're supposed to be, fresh. And that's not up to interpretation. To top things off, if you stop in and find that your table is wobbly, your coffee is on the house. And that is the Joe Guarantee. Mocha Joe's. Look for it next to Latte Larry in Hollywood. One sip and you'll know. It's pretty, 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 pretty good. Well, what's this guy's name anyway? He goes by the name of Mocha Joe. Did you say Mocha Joe? You know Nasty motherfucker. Welcome back to the Force 5 podcast. Tonight, I'm joined by Kyle Anderson. You can hear him daily on Sirius XM's Entertainment Now app on shows like Filmography and Up All Afternoon. Kyle, how are you? I am I'm so good, Jason. I'm very happy to be here. I'm ready to talk about some movies. Uh, I'm, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I don't know. I'm weirdly, like, I, um, uh, uh. Oh, I don't care for uh, the holiday season in general. I'm a bit of a Grinch. <laughs> okay. Um, but I'm but I'm always ready um, to discuss uh, the cinema. So this is uh, th- this is a rare uh, sort of shining moment in my otherwise uh, very dark hol- holiday season. <laughs> well, hopefully this will make your December and our listeners' December just a little bit better here. Uh, now you're on a bunch of podcasts. Of all the shows that you're on, what's your favorite? And tell us a little bit about it. Oh boy! I mean, I host, uh, as you mentioned, I am uh, the primary host on a platform on SiriusXM called Entertainment Now. A whole bunch of great uh, pop culture podcasts. Um, I mean, I'm I'm a music guy first and foremost. That was where that's where I like I was obsessed with with uh, you know pop music as as early as I could remember. Uh, my first uh, you know jobs out of school were writing primarily about music for magazines like Spin and Rolling Stone. Um, so I am a big fan of a show that I do called uh, Monday Mixtape, where I try to introduce people to about a half dozen songs every week. Because I know, nice. I mean, I'm I'm an old man now. I, I used to be young. <laughs> That's how it works uh, for everybody. But uh, I it is in always increasingly difficult to stay connected to new music, and so I like to I I, I have to kind of train myself to go out and seek and find stuff because otherwise I would just be listening to old Prince records all day every day. <laughs> Uh, which is, which, by the way, would be a great existence. Uh, so there's that. Sure. And then I also do a show called uh, Filmography, where myself and a friend of mine from Entertainment Weekly, by the name of Derek Lawrence, uh, we pick a star or a director sometimes, and uh, just run through, essentially run through their IMDb page uh, once a week. And uh, if you just take the credits. Without any sort of other context, it's really fun to kind of chart out someone's career. So uh, we just did a show on uh, Paul Thomas Anderson in honor of uh, Licorice Pizza going wide. Uh, we just did one on uh, Jada Pinkett Smith, which is fascinatingly weird. Um, <laughs> we did a double shot for Al Pacino. We did a show on Sandra Bullock. So it's, it's really fun to kind of go through these careers and, you know, really kind of chart out. And, you, and you, you know, you, when you line stuff up next to each other, it's always fun to either figure out like, oh man, they really went on a run here. Or the thing that I find most fun is that when you realize like, oh man, like 
Al Pacino kind of spent like ten years in the desert. Like really didn't do anything good for a long time. And like we 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 overlook that because we love the stuff that we love. Um sure. but boy, he's got some stinkers. <laughs> yes, he does. <laughs> 88 minutes comes to mind. Oh boy. Minutes. All time terrible. All time terrible movie. I can't wait until you cover Bruce Willis, because that's gonna be just a world of pain after like <laughs> Die Hard 2. Well, and considering the the volume that that guy cranks him out on now, that's going to have to be like a five-part series. Oh, yeah. That's a, a whole podcast on its own, I think. <laughs> oh, man. That just sounds painful. Yeah. <laughs> that was a good insight into your podcast. What about uh, some of your film taste? What are some of your all-time favorite movies? Oh, man. Uh, well, the um, whenever anybody asks what my all-time favorite film is, uh, my answer is always... Uh, Stanley Kubrick's uh, Dr. Strangelove or uh, How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. Um, I just, I, I think that is a, an absolutely, uh, you know, perfect artifact. Uh, it looks gorgeous. It has some of my favorite performances in film of all time. Uh, and it, I like, and I feel like it kind of, it's a very, you know, it's, it's a very funny movie. It's also incredibly dark. I mean, it does, spoiler alert for a movie that came out 50 years ago. Um, it does end with the destruction of everything on this planet. Um, so it is a, it is a pretty dark comedy. Uh, but I've, I've often felt like it kind of, it sort of, you know, like reflects my sense of humor and my worldview. I love Kubrick. Um, I love, uh, I'm a big, um, I'm a big horror guy. Uh, you know, have really got into, uh, you know, deeply into, into horror movies, like right around the time I got to college. And, um, so yeah, so I, you know, it, it kind of, it, it kind of runs together. And then I, you know, I also, I mean, we, we haven't announced yet, but I'm also, I have a lot of deep love and affection for a lot of, uh, the 1990s and yep. specifically for a handful of, uh, sort of like trendlets and subgenres uh, that emerged in the nineties, some of which we are going to uh, discuss on the show. Yeah, and I guess that leads a, a good segue into our topic. Top five 90s teen films. Aside from your love of the 90s, was there any other inspiration for this list? Well, it's um, I, I spend an inordinate amount of time thinking about teen movies from the 90s. <laughs> I do too. <laughs> for, yeah. Um, and it's largely because I don't know, um, I don't know what, what your experience uh, has been, Jason, but I... Um, I was such a, um, uh, a dick as a, as a, uh, a young person. <laughs> and I really kind of like, I, I was, a, I was a snob from a very early age. And so, um, if, you know, very much turned my nose up at kind of populist entertainment. And so a lot of these movies I didn't actually experience until I was well out of my teen years. Like I experienced them retroactively. Uh, and okay. so I have this very, very strange experience of all these movies where, like I very much remember, vividly remember the marketing for a lot of these, and, there's, and my 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 number one I did actually see in a theater when it was released. Um, sure. But like most of my memories from the era that these things came out come from the marketing push, from seeing people, you know, on the Tonight Show, like you know that kind of uh, that kind of experience, without actually going and, see, and then hearing you know people around me talk about these things, and then I didn't yep. actually go back and see them until later when I you know, saw the movie really through kind of like nostalgic eyes. And, uh, and I've, I'm, I've been amazed 
regularly at how much I really do adore them. Like they don't come across to me as certainly the, the, the five we're going to talk about don't come across to me as, uh, as corny at all in a way that I expected them to, you know, I mean, it's, there, there's something about the idea of teen movies in general, you know, going back to the, you know, like the fifties where they're almost designed to be these kind of effusive things that, you know, sort of dissolve into vapor, you know, the, the, the second they leave theaters. Right. Uh, and, um, and so, so I don't, I, you know, I don't know if it's more of a personal thing or if it's, if it's, you know, if it's, if it's a way that these movies are made or, or this, you know, certain perspectives in the filmmaking or whatever. Uh, but I have really grown to appreciate these on a very, um, kind of meta level that has really nothing to do with my actual experience of them as a teenager. Um, and I also, the other, the other thing is, is that, and so I think about that a lot. And the other thing is, um, I am, whenever I go into a used record store, uh, the thing that I'm always on the hunt for, in addition to a bunch of other, you know, sort of like sub subgenre type things, is I always look in the used CDs for, uh, soundtracks from the 90s. Okay. Yeah. Because they are... A, they are roundly great. Like there was, it was a real art form. Like the sort of the, the kind of curation of these things. Um, and B, very often because of the way that streaming works nowadays, very often they represent, um, you know, like they contain tracks by great artists that have otherwise been lost to history because of you know like weird licensing snafus and people don't bother to you know like you, you can't find most movie soundtracks complete on Spotify or anything. Yeah, I've um, noticed that too. And so, uh, so they are also this. There is a kind of uh, you know weird sort of spectral quality to them um, that uh, that I also kind of appreciate and enjoy. What year did you graduate high school? If you don't mind me asking. Two thousand. Okay, so I graduated a year before you, and my okay. experience is completely opposite of yours. I think because I was in this period in the late '90s where we had a friend whose brother worked at the movie theaters, and so we would go to see everything that oh, came wow. out. Uh, there was four or five of us and we would just like, he would let us in and we would spend the whole day there watching stuff. So I think out of everything on my list, only one I didn't see in theaters, everything else I saw in the theater. And I, I mean, I've seen these afterwards plenty of times, but yeah, my experiences are all based on the first time I saw them, not like subsequent viewings per se. But that's kind of an interesting uh, juxtaposition of our views going into this list. No, that'll be. I, I, I now I'm, I'm. I mean, I was interested before, but now I'm deeply fascinated to know. Like, so your your list is chosen on a much more um, uh, sort of visceral level than, than than mine, I imagine. Yeah, I think my my selections were really well. Four of them were like I was the same age as these characters were supposed to be, as I'm sure you right. saw when you started watching <laughs> movies that are like 30 year olds playing 17 year olds. But like when I was watching these 17 year olds on screen, I was 17. And for a lot of these characters and a lot of these, uh, certainly the fashion, I could uh, I could definitely oh, put myself in those shoes of those characters, <laughs> literally. Literal, yeah. yeah. In those British nights. <laughs> oh, man. All right. BKs. Respect. <laughs> Kyle Anderson, are you ready to get to the list? Let's do it, man. I'm psyched. I'm ready. You know what's going to happen? You know what's happening here right now? I know what's going to happen. No, no, no. What? You just made the list. Top five. Top five. The top 
top five 90s teen movies. Before we get started here, I, I got to ask, just yep. as a uh, as like a glimpse into the future, how many of your picks star somebody from Dawson's Creek? <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> um, you know, I actually don't think I have a Dawson's representative on here, which is wow. wild because I Dawson's Creek is, uh, on some days, my favorite television show of all time. You know, like, I was a film snob, but a television omnivore. That was one of the few shows <laughs> that I have, you know, watched. Like, I watched it every single week. I even, I, I felt so um, devoted to it that I stuck with it, uh, you know, into college uh, when it got very bad. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Or, or when they went to college. Are, worse, worse than it had been. Um, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, no, I don't have a, like, I would say that my, um, there's certainly like a bunch of movies that almost made it on the list. And there's one very significant one that stars uh, one of the Dawson's Creek team that uh, would like probably finish at number six, honestly. Okay. All right. Yeah. I have uh, two that star Dawson's Creek. Uh, alumni but i could have had four like this list has been (laughs) changing and morphing throughout the week and today like i just knocked one off and before i knocked another one off so there are two on my honorable mentions that uh that could have been on here Um, but that out of the way kyle anderson what's number five on your list of top five 90s teen movies Top five 90s teen movies. Number five on my list is a film from uh, 1991, which in, um, you know, in some circles doesn't really feel like the 1990s yet. Uh, for <laughs> me, the decade doesn't really start till 92. But in 91, uh, there's a film that arrived uh, that summer uh, called Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead. She came. I'm a babysitter. She saw... She croaked. They'll definitely call mom. Don't tell mom. The babysitter's dead. Rock and roll! Now, Christina Applegate spends the summer... Don't forget to do the dishes, okay? ...with no nagging, no curfews, no rules. Dishes are done, man. Don't tell mom. The babysitter's dead. Ready PG-13. Now playing at a theater near you. Starring uh, Christina Applegate in... um, uh, what was her big, um, you know, kind of breakout uh, film performance? She had, she had been uh, uh, known on television, uh, I, I believe, for a few seasons at that point on uh, Married with Children. Yeah. Uh, but this was her big uh, sort of cinematic coming out party. Um, for people who haven't seen it, it says just what it says on the tin. Um, it is a movie wherein a bunch of teens are left with. Um, an elderly babysitter who almost instantly dies <laughs> and then and then it kind of becomes this really like in my mind a really neat kind of um you know like youth fantasy thing where it's like okay now we are on our own and we have no you know because it's 1991 we have no real way of getting in touch with anybody we have no access to electronic funds like it's you know it's a very it's a very kind of analog story it's, it's one of those movies that you know um could not exist today uh because the second you introduce any kind of modern technology into it it negates the entire story yeah it's like home alone 100 percent, 100 percent. uh and so uh, so I, like that is a i think that is the thing that makes it really special honestly and uh, i mean like much in the same way that you 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 negate 
what, 75% of the plots of Seinfeld if, if everybody has a cell phone, <laughs> right? Like, I think, I'm pretty sure that someone actually did that in their <laughs> um, And so Christine Applegate, you know, it, it became, like, the first act ends up being this kind of, you know, thing where it's like this, you know, very much like that that first part of Home Alone where there's this sort of, uh, you know, the, the, you kind of live out the fantasy of having no parents and you do what you want. And then you eventually realize that you have to buckle down. Christine Applegate, uh, you know, gets a series of jobs. And um, and I, I just think that it's a, like, it's a dumb movie. But it also has I just like I like how how big the swing is with the uh, with the concept. It's a relatively high concept, high concept, low intelligence, and <laughs> um, and and I and I, I and that the the kids in it. And this is a, sort of a, a thing that you were um, uh, alluding to before, Jason. Uh, that the kids in it really read as teens, even though like I'm sure yeah. they were all in their twenties when they made it. But it really it feels they feel authentically teeny. Uh, in a way that did not often happen with like high school era movies, particularly in the early 90s. Yeah, I agree. I loved this movie as a kid. As a kid, I always got this one mixed up with um, Adventures in Babysitting. Sure. To me, as a kid, they like blended together, but I did always like this one. It always struck me as really odd, though, that... Uh, so and you'll have to remind me if I'm wrong. It's been a while since I've seen it, but the mom just like bounces to Australia or something. Yes. She's in Australia. Yeah. And she just leaves for, for like two months. She leaves her kids with somebody that she hadn't even really met before. And it always struck me as really odd. It is. It's watching this movie as, as an adult is hilarious because, uh, cause yeah, cause the, like the mom, you know, like, I, like, I guess if you're, if you're a kid, you don't really like the mom's just kind of gone. You don't really read into it. But, like, the mom in this movie is deeply, deeply irresponsible. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> totally. Like, like, the reason why her kids are screw-ups is because she's she's shown a very bad example. Oh, yeah. And you got early 90s David Duchovny in there, too. Yes. Playing one of his, like, signature like, pre-X-Files scumbags. Like, that was the... <laughs> I, I kind of love that about Duchovny. And he really kind of got back into it with Californication. But I kind of love that, like, pre-X-Files, he just played... Like, he played like jerks in youth movies and then and like and, and then he did red shoe diaries like he was he's just like a series of different kind of scumbags <laughs> it is like even for the for the x-files it's wild to me that that dude was on a, a hit network television show for as long as he was oh i totally agree there so uh that's a great number five don't tell mom the babysitter's dead from 1991 yeah great pick I'm going to start mine off by going to the other end of the 90s with one of my Dawson's Creek vehicles here. This is Varsity Blues from 1999. In America, we have laws. And it's just accepted that as a member of American society, you will live by these laws. In West Canaan, Texas, there is another society which has its own laws. We do things around here my way. You're going to be second string all your life, boy. This game is 48 minutes for the next 48 years of your life. The hell with Gilbert. <laughs> this is your opportunity for here. you. Playing football at West Canaan may have been the opportunity of your lifetime, but I don't want your life. You disobey me, and I will bury you. I know about your scholarship to Brown. Only way we're going back out in the fields without you. Kilmer said, 48 minutes, the next 48 years of our lives. I say we go out there and we'll leave it all out on the field. 
We got the rest of our lives to be mediocre, but we have the opportunity to play like gods. Let's be heroes. Again, it just hit at the right moment for me. It stars James Vanderbeek, who was, of course, Dawson, playing Johnny Moxon, or uh, Mox, as he's called. <laughs> you love Dawson's Creek. I also loved Dawson's Creek when it was on. It spoke to me in probably the same kind of ways it spoke to you. Like, I wanted to be a filmmaker back then. I watched it every week. My friends made fun of me. Unlike you, I did not follow up with it when they went to college. <laughs> as I went to college, it just... You made the right choice. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I've seen it since. Uh, because Netflix picked it up and stuff with that awful like redo theme song. But I have since gone back to like watch the first three seasons a couple times. And whereas a lot of people watch The Office in the background while they do busy work, I will have Dawson's Creek on in the background and I have no shame. But uh, great cast. It also has Paul Walker, Ali Larder, Scott Kane, and uh, John Voight, which, you know, watching it now, seeing John Voight being humiliated and destroyed by high school kids is very satisfying. It is. I mean, because he's such a bastard in that movie and he, he plays such a um, such a wonderful villain. I mean, he he thinks he's you know doing like some kind of hard boiled 80s movie. <laughs> yes. Perfect. And so when he gets his comeuppance, it really is. It's, it's a glorious moment. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's it's a great climax to this movie. For those who haven't seen Varsity Blues, it's your typical, like, small-town high school football team where everybody in the town is so invested in this high school football team. It's like Friday Night Lights before Friday Night Lights. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I was a big football fan. Still, I am a big football fan. But that period of the late 90s had all kinds of good football movies. You had, like, Any Given Sunday. Remember, The Titans was in 2000. Not far after was Friday Night Lights, but not since probably the program in 93 had there been an R-rated football movie. And this one just hit at the right time for me because I could actually go to see it. I couldn't go see the program in 93 because I was like 12 years old. Rewatching this now, there are a bunch of problematic things in here. And I think you're going to find that theme in a lot of 90s movies. There's just like all kinds of stuff that's not acceptable. Uh, like just tons of crimes committed for laughs and some very early CTE stuff, like the concussion stuff that's kind of skirted around. But I mean, the right, like, like, like the Billy Bob character, like very clearly gets concussed multiple times. And oh, yeah. And, like, and it's often hilarious. The uh, the Skeeter character, Scott Kahn, uh, is a real problem. Like he has that monologue where he talks about. Uh, like giving girls like Percocet and stuff. And it's like, Oh, yes. this is, that is super not cool. I don't know why this is played as being awesome. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it was a weird time. <laughs> I think. But, uh, you know, I still find myself enjoying it whenever I see it pop up on a streaming channel. It's got a great nineties soundtrack. Yeah. Uh, some standout moments have to include the whipped cream bikini scene. And of course, Dawson's Southern drawl when he says, I don't want your life. <laughs> I, I mean, it's Regina George's favorite movie. So how can you go wrong with Varsity Blues? It's also, I don't know if you've heard this. It's also rumored to be getting a TV show soon. I know they did a, uh, a pilot episode back in like 2001 or something like that. But news popped up recently of a reboot for a TV show. So I'm kind of interested in that in the same vein as like Friday Night Lights. I mean, it does feel like it, you know, the, the, it, it lends itself to that, to that kind of, uh, that kind of format. It's a universal narrative. And it, you know, I've always wondered uh, because Varsity Blues, I think was like a pretty solid hit, right? It comes out in like, I think like February or January 99 is the number one movie in the country for a couple weeks, makes a decent amount of money. 
and everybody still everybody liked it then. They still like it now. We're still talking about it in the year of our Lord 2021. And it's confusing to me how that didn't turn Vanderbeek into a movie star. Oh, I know. I know. He had so it felt like he had chances. Yeah. I mean, it's like, it, you know, he like took a, you know, like had one opportunity. I would imagine because of the schedule of Dawson's Creek, probably had one opportunity to make a movie and made a great one. And is really good in it. And uh, and for whatever reason, everybody was just like, yeah, no, thank you. I don't <laughs> we don't want any more of this. <laughs> Yeah, it felt like everybody else, like all the other main characters in Dawson's Creek really went on to do pretty big things. I mean, even Josh Jackson went on to do some really big things like Fringe and all those movies he was in. But Dawson kind of got left behind. Yeah, it's uh, um, it's very strange. It's very strange. <laughs> yeah, so that's my number five, Varsity Blues, 1999. Great pick. Excellent pick. Uh, my number four uh, for my uh, top five 90s teen movies is uh, from the year... What year actually is this? I believe it's 93. And, oh, sorry, uh, 1992. So we're, uh, we're, we're moving in chronological order at this point. That won't, that won't stick. Uh, <laughs> it is a film from 92, and uh, this was the one on my list where I was like, is this a teen movie? And I had a long conversation with my wife about it, and ultimately we decided that, yes, it is, in fact, a teen movie. Uh, it is part of a great... One of my favorite... Uh, sort of like pockets of film in history is, you know, post the success of Do the Right Thing, all of a sudden Hollywood gets very invested in black filmmakers. And so for about five years or so, we get this amazing wave of well-funded black cinema uh, where you get, you know, movies like Boys in the Hood and Menace to Society. Uh, this is a probably a lesser entry in that canon, but still one of my all-time favorites. It is Ernest Dickerson's Juice, uh, which is, um, if uh, if nothing else, the cinematic debut of Tupac Shakur. It's what you talk about. If you want respect, you gotta earn it. GQ! It's what you fight for. You gotta be ready to throw down, stand up, and die for that stuff. Check this out. Gonna be a piece of cake, Q. What is you scared? You're mixed up in it, aren't you? It's what you need to survive. Juice rated R. And uh, I, you know, this is it's very kind of prototypical for black movies, particularly you know, movies about black youth from the early 90s. Uh, it's about four friends uh, growing up in a project in New York City. It's a great New York movie. And, um, and they uh, feel disrespected and they, uh, in order to gain respect, they are going to uh, rob a convenience store. Tupac introduces uh, the sort of uh, hideous specter of a pistol into the scenario. They end up killing the clerk. And the second half of Juice ends up becoming this, like almost a kind of horror movie uh, where... Mm. Tupac goes, his character's name is, is Bishop, goes a little bit off the rails and is convinced that, you know, gets really paranoid, is convinced everyone's going to snitch on him. Um, some really, really strong performances from Tupac and from Omar Epps, um, you know, directed by Ernest Dickerson, who also co-wrote the screenplay. Um, uh, he was um, Spike Lee's director of photography for his first couple movies. Uh, so it has a great look to it. Also, like all the movies on my list, a great soundtrack. Um, and, uh, yeah, just, uh, just a really 
good exemplar of, uh, you know, like, it's not as, it has less to say than something like Boys in the Hood, which is, you know, probably the sort of more, um, you know, kind of thoughtful, poetic version uh, of this movie. But I also don't, I don't read Boys in the Hood as a teen movie, even though they're all in high school. Um, right. This feels like it has the kind of, it has that real sort of, like, almost exploitation spirit that I think you kind of need for a proper teen movie, and that's why Juice is my number four. I've never seen Juice, and I feel like I need to now. And you you brought up another good point, too, when you try to define what a 90s teen movie is. It just, like, you know it when you see it. And <laughs> yes. You're right. Very like, much like the Supreme Court in <laughs> pornography. <laughs> when you said Boys in the Hood, I'm like, oh, shit, I totally didn't even think of that or Menace to Society when I was building my list, but I guess it just doesn't, they don't feel like teen movies. And so, yeah, that's probably why I, my mind just excluded them. Like you could maybe make the case for Menace to Society, but it, like that, that movie is so, the general tone of that movie is so down. Yeah. Whereas like Juice feels more like um, a kind of not necessarily a romp, but it's more of a more of a kind of a um, kind of a trifle. I think that's one of the reasons why it's um, you know like a very effective entertainment. I've always had a thing uh, a thing for Ernest Dickinson's direction or Dickerson's direction. He did uh, Surviving the Game, which <laughs> which I've always loved. He has a very very strange filmography. <laughs> yeah, I know he did Bones with a uh, Snoop Dogg. Snoop, yeah, man. <laughs> <laughs> like Monday Night Mayhem, the story of like Monday Night Football. Just so odd. He did Never Die Alone, which I think is the worst of the DMX movies. <laughs> Worse than the Seagal movies? Oh, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, well, uh, we're going to bring this back to 1999 here. I noticed that a lot of my picks are from like 98 and 99, but uh, this one is going to bring us back into that romp style with 10 Things I Hate About You. Uh, another another title that very nearly made my list. Daddy, now as you know, it's the prom. The only thing more difficult than taking out Bianca. New rule, Bianca can date when she does. She's a mutant. What if she never dates? And you'll never date. Oh, I like that. He's finding someone with the courage to tame her sister. Hey! Me with my arm around you. You covered in my vomit. On March 31st. I've never seen you look so sexy. <laughs> 10 Things I Hate About You Stay cool, bro Rated PG-13 Starts March 31st Directed by Gil Younger This is a modern adaptation of this Shakespeare work The Taming of the Shrew And for those who haven't seen it On the first day at his new school This dude Cameron Played by a very young Joseph Gordon-Levitt Instantly falls for Bianca Played by Larissa Olnick She's the girl of his dreams But... She is forbidden to date until her ill-tempered, completely undateable older sister Cat goes out on a date too. So, in order to solve his problem, he finds the only guy who could possibly be a match for Cat. It is a late 90s film that feels kind of like an 80s film to me. It is really fun, it's pretty funny, and I think it has a great script. One thing that you'll find across my picks is that they all have really great casts with people who would go on to be absolutely huge, and this is no different. Like I mentioned, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Larissa Olnek, who I remember from Alex Mack, but we right. also have uh, Julia Stiles, who plays the high school's ice queen. Uh, what's the, the quote? She likes Thai food, feminist prose, and angry girl music of the indie rock persuasion. I mean, what's not to like there? And uh, of course, Heath Ledger 
in a role that made women melt and men question their sexuality. He is fantastic in this. Near the end, we get this great scene where Heath Ledger's character uses a marching band to win over Cat, and it's just a brilliant climax to their story. Uh, I'm going to finish off my, my thoughts about 10 Things I Hate About You by saying, I hate it when the paying someone to date someone else cliche comes up in a movie. I hate it when this made me laugh, even worse when it made me cry, but mostly I hate the way I don't hate this film. Not even close, not even a little bit, not even at all. <laughs> yeah, 10 uh, Things I Hate About You. That was 100% one that almost made my list. Um, I mean, the, every every single performance in that movie is absolutely top-notch. Um, oh, yeah. You know, I uh, I remember, I, I saw that, um, I think right when it hit video, sort of in early 2000. And just had the hugest crush on Julia Stiles. She's very crushable in that movie, even though she's supposed to be this, you know, this sort of <laughs> undateable shrew. Um, but uh, yeah, and it and it is, it's one of those performances from Heath Ledger where you juxtapose it with the stuff he did later in his career, and it does not seem like the same human being. Which is, I guess, a testament to his his abilities as an actor. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember. I remember when he was cast as the Joker, and people were like, "Are you kidding me? It's going to be the guy from Ten Things I Hate About You." And then, right. like, obviously, he went blow everybody away with it. But gosh, he was he was just a terrific actor altogether. Yeah, man. Um, that director, by the way, he later directed a movie called Ten Things I Hate About Life, which was about like people finding romance after trying to commit suicide. So what a weird like um... trajectory he had. Okay, guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a uh, movie I would not pop into the Blu-ray player, that's for sure. Yeah, I am... Um, I, didn't they make it into a TV series at some point? Like, like Yeah, there was... Uh, ten, yeah, wasn't that... Uh, oh, wait, that was The Rules of Dating My Teenage Daughter. I don't know if there was a... <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting confused with that one. I don't know if this was a TV show or not. It might have been. Yeah, 2009 on uh, ABC Family, which is now uh, Freeform. I'm I'm looking down the cat. Well, Larry Miller returned for it. That's weird. Um, <laughs> and I'm looking. I'm just looking down the cast to see if anybody was in it before they became big, and nobody. Okay. All right. Well, if you want to watch the movie, we we stand by that. The TV show, we don't know. Yes, hundred <laughs> percent agreed. Uh, number three on my list of uh, the five best '90s teen movies is now. I I I feel like this one. Might be where we have just based on your first two picks, Jason. I feel like this one may there may be some overlap here. Okay, okay. Uh, this is a film uh, from the summer of uh, 1998. Again, something I did not see until I got. Um, I, I think I had finished college by the time I finally got around to seeing this, and it instantly became. This is the one movie where I like I regret not having seen this in a theater because I feel like the experience of that would have been useful and thrilling to me uh it is a film uh, by the directing and writing team of uh deborah kaplan and harry elfont it's called can't hardly wait time to get freaky their first night of freedom he is the most dope guy in school yeah and school's over was their last chance amanda to say what they want god you're a hottie Hey, can I see you naked? Do what they feel. Maybe I should wear a hat. Listen here, Hootie. Hootie! And be who they are. I wonder how William was doing at the party. I can't feel my legs. I can't feel my legs! Can't hardly wait. Rated PG-13. Opens everywhere June 12th. Ooh, this is on my honorable mentions. Yes. Uh, shares its title with the replacement song of the same name. It is... 
an incredibly straightforward premise. It takes place uh, at a graduation party, uh, you know, uh, the, the, essentially the last night of high school for um, all of these uh, characters. Um, the main guy is played by Ethan Embry, and he wants to tell his crush, played by Jennifer Love Hewitt, how he really feels about her. Um, he's leaving to go to college like the next day for whatever reason. Uh, and so this is his last chance. You know, he's a real sort of like, you know, uh, uh, romantic poet type. Yeah. And then uh, everybody else in the movie is great. Uh, Seth Green, Lauren Ambrose. Um, there's a great uh, uh, nerd character played by Charlie Corsmo, uh, who's like trying to, uh, you know, his whole thing is he's trying to sort of like get one over on the jocks. Um, and uh, it's just a, um, it is, you know, it's 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 essentially a hangout movie. Like there's, you know, you kind of sort of follow the thread of the Ethan Embry character trying to you know, get the attention of Jennifer Love Hewitt. Uh, but it's not, you know, at, like as plots go, that's not <laughs> the most compelling or complicated <laughs> thing. But it, it is large. Like you know, there are there are parts of it that feel like a kind of. Um, you know, like a very sort of, you know, slick version of like a Richard Linklater movie where yeah, it's just kind of, here are some, here's a party and here are some things that are happening at that party. Um, yeah. And this is one where, because it is a high school party where a whole bunch of different subsets of people and cliques are represented, the cross-section of fashion in this thing blows me away every time I see it. <laughs> Just the goggles that Seth Green wears. Oh, man. And it's like, and it's one of those things where, you know, people are going to look back at this movie and think like, well, that's obviously a cartoon. No, my friends. <laughs> people that was actually the 90s. wore those goggles out in public. <laughs> two places. Um, and so, yeah, I just, like, I, I remember when I saw this, I thought, oh, man, like, I, I should have seen this when I was actually 16. Um, but it's, but I was still able to really uh, appreciate it. And again, you know, like every other thing on this list, excellent soundtrack. Yeah, I really like this one too. Just nearly missed my list. Peter, a, a young Peter Facinelli's in there too, right. who I have always liked. And uh, like you said, great soundtrack. Seth Green's outfit, just the whole outfit, the Jinko <laughs> jeans and the uh, the goggles. Like he's got like he's got like this sort of this like shiny kind of raver jacket thing. It's it's absurd, and yet. I 100% went to high school with dudes that look like that. Oh, yeah. 100%. 100%. And Ethan Embry, who will probably pop up on my list later on. Ooh, that's exciting. Let's see. My number three. I guess I'll knock out my other 1999 movies for this 1999 trifecta. So we can go <laughs> back in time a little bit. Sure. Uh, this is one that has always been one of my favorite 90s movies. Directed by the Whites Brothers, American Pie. Ah, classic. How sweet it is to be loved by you. American Pie is not just another teen comedy. Just ask Rolling Stone. They're calling it the most hilarious exhibition of sexual confusion since The Graduate. Huh? It's not what it looks like. Woo! It's rolling the aisles funny. You won't laugh more all summer. I, I think he's trying to watch some illegal channel. This is just a bad reception, honey. <sighs> oh, baby. What's that? American Pie, rated R, starts Friday at theaters everywhere. For those who haven't seen American Pie, it's about four friends, Jim, Oz, Finch, and Kevin, who make a pact that they, before they graduate, they're going to lose their virginity. 
And uh, of course, the, the hard part is how to reach that goal by prom night. It's one of those movies, just like Varsity Blues, that came out at the perfect time for me. It came out on my birthday, the year I graduated, and uh, it brought back the rated R sex comedy that the 80s had a ton of. And then as we see trends, like a lot of things stopped as the 80s stopped. Slashers kind of stopped as the 80s stopped, and so did those rated R sex comedies. Uh, And this kind of brought those back. Watching it now, of course, it is crude, but it's also surprisingly sweet in spots. And there's some pretty decent character development, particularly between certain couples like uh, Oz and Heather. Unlike a lot of teen movies, this group of guys felt like real actual high school friends. Um, In tone, I think it's a pretty balanced movie. The cast is really great, starting with Jason Biggs as Jim and Eugene Levy as his dad. That dynamic is really funny and pretty wholesome throughout the whole series. He just seems like such a good dad. And uh, the film also introduced us to Stifler, a role that uh, Sean William Scott, of course, has never been able to shake because even now I watch and I'm like, Stifler! (laughs) Uh, I'm sure it's the same way for you. Blink and you'll miss some cameos from Casey Affleck and John Cho. I just think everybody's great in this. And, you know, we've been talking about soundtracks. There's a, a Blink-182 song that plays during the live stream strip scene, which is totally outlandish, but Blink-182 themselves are watching the stream, and that's always been amusing to me because they're like one of my favorite bands ever. We also got like Third Eye Blind, The Bare Naked Ladies, Fat Boy Slim, and Sugar Ray. It doesn't get much more 90s than that. Um, so just a, a great movie. Plus, we get a, a kid banging a pie. I mean, <laughs> what more do you want out of a 90s teen movie? Exactly. Like a warm apple pie. This is this is one of the few that I actually did see. I believe I saw it the night it came out uh, in mm-hmm. July of 99 and is one of my favorite movie-going experiences. Oh, fantastic. Because it was... Because every... You know, everybody in... I'm, I assume everybody in the sold-out room was 17 and just, <laughs> just 100% vibing on everything in this movie. And and I, I went back to rewatch it uh, probably about a year ago, and uh, it you know a lot of it is deeply problematic. I mean the whole like the, <laughs> yeah. the whole Nadia portion of the film is uh, troubling. Hundred percent, hundred percent. But the thing that really kind of resonated with me to, to to your point, Jason, is the relationship between Jason Biggs and Eugene Levy feels um, very uh, very sweet and very authentic. Um, yeah. And, uh, and I, like, I, I even, I'm a guy who some, I sometimes think I might actually prefer American Pie 2. Um, and, and I think largely because like the sort of like the Jim and his dad dynamic is blown up a little bit, a little bit more in that movie. It's also got a great opening with them too. That the second one. <laughs> oh, where he goes to pick him up at college, right? That's how that one opens. <laughs> yeah. And he's, he's in uh, the, the room with a girl. Yes. Uh, perfect. An absolutely like perfect scenario. A great way to open that movie. Well, I'm glad that you share my uh, my affection for it, even if it is problematic today. Um, yeah. Kyle Anderson, number two on your list. Number two on my list. Uh, all right, so now we're getting into, uh, this is probably the most uh, kind of deeply sentimental pick of my list. Um, I, you know, and I guess this movie has kind of taken on a bit of a cult status in the last, you know, uh, decade or so. Uh, I think largely because it has so many 
Um, it, it, you know, it's a lot of its cast, you know, went in a lot of really interesting directions in the years subsequent. And it's also part, one of the reasons why I love it, it's part of a wave of films that came out in 1995 that, uh, for whatever reason, that was the year that Hollywood decided, okay, we're going to try to figure out the internet. <laughs> and so you had all of these kind of weirdly, none of them are great, but you have a lot of really interesting, uh, you know, like essentially cyberpunk movies uh, that include um, uh, The Net and oh god yeah <laughs> which is a which is a weird watch in 2021 um and uh johnny mnemonic and uh strange days and my pick for number two on my list of the uh, five greatest 90s teen movies is a movie called hackers hidden beneath the world we know is the world they inhabit Dave. yeah mom what are you doing i'm taking over a tv network Finish up, honey, and get to sleep. They're hackers. Hackers penetrate and ravage private and publicly owned computer systems. Hack the planet. Hack the planet! It's not just something they do. Sure, this sweet machine's not going to waste. Are you challenging me? It's who they are. I win, you wear a dress on our date. And if I win, so do you. They can crack any code. Get inside any system. Hello? Mr. Gill, according to our records, you're dead. I'm what? But this time... Come here, look at this. It's some kind of virus. Unless $5 million is transferred to the following account, I will capsize five oil tankers. We're in uh, a handful of uh, teen hackers in New York City uh, get embroiled in um, a very, very convoluted... Uh, eco-terrorism plot led by <laughs> evil hacker Fisher Stevens and uh, and it stars a very very early uh, role for Angelina Jolie and uh, she plays opposite Johnny Lee Miller I believe they were married not long uh, after this movie came out which is uh, oh, probably, really? probably a strange footnote in both of their lives <laughs> does she have a tattoo of his name on her <laughs> she did carry on a vial of his blood for a while it's uh <laughs> Kind of remember when Angelina Jolie did that, and that was like, a, and everybody was cool with it. She's like, "Yeah, here's here. First of all, <laughs> first of all, I'm with Billy Bob Thornton," and everyone was like, "Yeah, that's fine, no problem." And then she's like, "And I carry his blood with me," and everyone was like, "Yes, that's fine, no problem." What were we thinking? Don't act like you don't hold a vial of your wife's blood on you at all times, because well, I do. I mean, because now it's obviously de rigueur. In the nineties, in the two thousands, everybody's like, "What's going on? We don't know." Yeah, uh, Hackers has this wonderful. Uh, energy to it. Uh, it's uh, it also features a completely out of his mind Matthew Lillard. Uh, several <laughs> several years before he would he would be in Scream, and um, and just has uh, you know Fisher Stevens and Lorraine Bracco play the main villains. Um, it's got um, it's got Mark Anthony as a um, Secret Service agent in it, uh, which is uh, super fun. The um, sort of cyberspace consultant on this movie uh, is, uh, was all, and he's also in the movie as a security guard, uh, is Penn Gillette, the magician and the voice of comedy central <laughs> at the time. Uh, it, is, it has such a weird pedigree. And it, but the thing, is, so like, it does have this kind of weird, you know, um, you know, screenplay that is just kind of like, well, what, let's figure out like what the internet might be. 
and um, but it still ha- it, rema- it, it maintains this real great teen movie energy uh, where you know like a bunch of sort of disparate youths band together uh, to uh, topple the man. Um, you know, it's uh, it, it reminds me a lot of if you've ever seen um, uh, Pump Up the Volume. I feel like it kind of has a lot of the same type of um, of, uh, of, of, of energy that that movie has. Uh, and it's also one of those, it's also one of those scenarios where, um, uh, it's made by a guy named, uh, Ian Softley, uh, who I just, again, has one of the weirdest filmographies, uh, in history. Um, because the movie he makes before this is a movie called Backbeat that is about the early Beatles. And then the movie he makes right after this is, um, uh, the Wings of the Dove, which is a weird, like, um, uh, Helena Bonham Carter um, uh, sort of turn-of-the-century romantic thing. And then after that, he makes K-Pax, where, <laughs> where Kevin Spacey uh, played an alien and is unwatchable. Like, it's just, I, I love, um, it's, 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 it's the weirdest arc, and um, I love that the same guy that made Hackers made all those movies. I love Hackers, too. I, I am a sucker for those early internet movies especially watching them now uh oh, the yeah. movies that you mentioned plus like stuff like virtuosity it just oh, it's so yeah. cool to watch now because you can see oh they're they're uploading super viruses through payphones over dial-up internet okay for my number two we're gonna go back in time here to you, you mentioned that the the decade really didn't start until 1992 but uh when it comes to teen movies one of my favorites actually came out in 1990 this is the hilarious, and a movie that still holds up today, House Party from 1990. If my pops finds out I got in trouble in school today, I'm definitely going to be on punishment. Ah! Uh, there's a party tonight at Peter's house. Can I go? You're not going nowhere. Every little step you take will be around this bedroom tonight. Did you hear anything about a party tonight? Uh-uh. At least not any good ones. Hello, Tawatha. Do I feel like being bothered with Tawatha? Hello, LaDonna. What you got to say now, punk? How much more trouble can I get into? Hey, Eraserhead. Look, I'm in prison. Just do me a favor. Don't pick up the soap. Wait till I find him. I'm going to kill him. Yo, y'all look who fell into the gig. Hey, this ain't Soul Train. The two finest women in here. Now, how could a man choose? Hey, he better choose right. OK, so where we're on our way to? The house party. What? The house party! Jay ain't going to that damn party. That's all to it. I don't give a damn what you say. You're gonna make me a social misfit. Oh, house party with Kid and Play! Yes, stars the rap duo Kid and Play. It's about Kid. Uh, he has been invited to a party at Play's house, but after he gets into a fight at school, his dad grounds him so he can't leave the house. Uh, but, of course, this is a movie, and Kid's gonna get into some trouble, so he sneaks out when his dad falls asleep. But uh, Kid doesn't know that three of the thugs at school have decided to show up to the party to teach him a lesson. So I have always been a fan of this movie. This is the one on my list that I did not get to see in theaters because I was 10 years old, 9 years old when it came out. Sure. And uh, it's rated R, so I wasn't allowed to go. But this series was like a sleepover classic for my friends and I. Like there was always a friend who had a house party movie on VHS. And uh, (laughs) so we always used to watch it. 
as a hip hop fan, there's always been something about this movie that's drawn me to it. And I think it's because back in that period, it was before like the really gangster uh, misogynistic period of hip hop. And it was about having fun, about having parties. And that really comes across in this movie. I think it's crazy how old everybody looks that goes to this high school. Like they didn't even bother trying to make people look young. Even the extras look like 40 year old men sitting in the background, but that's never really bothered me. It's more like been an amusing feature of the film. Um, You know, as an actor, kid was okay, but play play has this really great on-screen charisma. And I was actually, I had to look him up after I rewatched it. Cause I rewatched it like right after you proposed this topic, I rewatched this. And uh, I was surprised that he didn't end up doing anything else outside of the house party films because every time he was on screen, he was like a spark plug and uh, just seemed like he could have done more on screen. Of course, their DJ is played by Martin Lawrence. This is like a pre-Bad Boys, pre-Martin yeah. Martin Lawrence. And uh, he's really funny in this as a DJ who just wants people to stop knocking his DJ table so he's, uh, he can get his scratches in. Sometimes he grates me in movies, but not here. I thought he was pretty funny. And his future Martin co-star, Tisha Campbell's also in here. Uh, and I want to give a shout out to Robin Harris, who plays Kid's father. He is so good in this movie. This was unfortunately like his last movie. He passed away of a heart attack like right before this. It was either right before or right after this released. But uh, he comes across at first as like this typical dad who works the graveyard shift and isn't really that involved in his life. But as the movie goes on, you can see that he's actually a really good dad and he comes to the party to find out what kid's doing. And when he comes to the party, he walks in the front door and he just starts roasting everybody. It's hilarious. He was a, uh, a stand-up comedian, so I have to assume he was like a working part of his act. It is funny as hell when he walks in there and just starts like going in on these teenagers. Um, there's a great dance off at the party. There's also a really great rap battle. Sometimes you watch these rap battles in movies and they feel really wonky and pretty lame. But as I was rewatching this, I was surprised at how like clever and effortless the lyrics seemed like these dudes definitely had some talent. Um, Again, just a just a stark difference between this teen film and later options on my list. But I think it has to do with the style and the music. Everything is fun, super vibrant, pretty lighthearted. And uh, one final thought, John Witherspoon's in here. He played uh, Ice Cube's dad in Friday. Right. He plays this annoyed neighbor. He's basically playing the same character, but he is so funny in like this this small bit role. So there's a bunch of house party movies. I Obviously, the first one is the best. It's uh, streaming on HBO Max right now. So uh, yeah, it's House Party from 1990. It does have this incredible spirit of... Uh, of fun about it in a way that those records at the time did. I'm kind of surprised that um, there hasn't been like a kind of grand reconsidering of those kid and play records because they're, they're pretty solid albums. Yeah. The first two were really good. Yeah. And, um, and the thing I I think to your point, Jason, um, one of the things I find really great about house party is that uh, another movie that I love is that it feels really scrappy yeah. Like it, it has this, I mean, it's, you know, it's obviously like a very, it's a incredibly straightforward plot. It's basically one location. Um, but it, it, it just, it has this real sort of like this great kind of, uh, you know, um, this kind of joie de vivre about it. Um, that is very, um, uh, kind of, um, infectious. And that the, the subsequent, one of the big problems with the, with the sequels is that like, you know, they feel so much more like, you know, like an obligation, <laughs> like, you know, because, right, exactly. because this movie made so much more. House Party was a big hit. 
And so it was, yep. from, from then on, it was like, well, now we're in the business of making house party movies. But, it, you know, when they made the first one, it was like, well, we're just we're just trying to do anything. And it really works. Kyle Anderson, grand finale for you. Number one on your top five 90s teen films. We've arrived at my number one. And, you know, I considered a few different films for the top position. But if I was really being honest with myself, uh, it would have to be. Um, a movie that um, I, I, I watch, I still probably watch once a year, sometimes even more frequently than that. Uh, and I am for, I cannot believe it exists as an artifact because by all, by all means, it should have withered um, almost instantaneously. It's almost designed to do that uh, and yet feels strangely timeless. Uh, it is the uh, 1995 Amy Heckerling classic, Clueless, is my number one. So, okay, like right now, for example, the Hadians need to come to America. But some people are all, what about the strain on our resources? And it's like, when I had this garden party for my father's birthday, right? People came that, like, did not RSVP. So I was, like, totally bugging. I had to haul ass to the kitchen, squish in extra place settings, and, like, people were on mismatched chairs and all. But by the end of the day, it was like, the more, the merrier. And so, if the government could just get to the kitchen, rearrange some things, we could certainly party with the Hadians. Wow. Cher is saving herself for Luke Perry. Cher, you're a virgin? I mean, I'm not prude. I'm just highly selective. I mean, you see how picky I am about my shoes, and they only go on my feet. Nice stems. Thanks. Whatever. Did I miss something? This big hair back? <laughs> Amber, my plastic surgeon doesn't want me doing any activity where balls fly at my nose. Well, there goes your social life. This is, uh, of course, stars uh, Alicia Silverstone. Uh, as a girl named Cher Horowitz. She lives in Beverly Hills. Uh, she lives a very privileged life. Um, she's loosely based on uh, the Jane Austen character, Emma. And um, and again, it's, it's, um, it is kind of, it's, it's a strangely kind of episodic movie. There's not a whole lot of like, you know, like it's, 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 it's sort of a series of mini arcs um, that uh, the kind of, you know, I guess like the kind of school year is the sort of main, um, sort of rotating arc, but it um, it's you know the the it's a very aggressive use of slang. Um, it is a parade of pop culture references. Um, you know she has uh, it's it's really very strange to watch portions of this movie because it's a lot of Alicia Silverstone hanging out with Stacy Dash, who's a lunatic now, and <laughs> um, and and Brittany Murphy, who who has passed away. Um, so it's, you know, it, we have, uh, um, uh, a very early, uh, edition of Paul Rudd in this film, who somehow looks older <laughs> in this movie than he does now. It's very yeah. upsetting. And uh, like a lot of, like, it's the whole thing is filled out with these great character actors too. I mean, just to big up the cast, like, you know, Dan Hedaya, like classic, that guy, uh, plays Cher's father, uh, Wallace Shawn plays, uh, one of her teachers, um, you know, uh, uh, you know her. Um, Stacy Dash's uh, boyfriend's played by Donald Faison. Uh, Brecken Meyer floats through this movie. Jeremy Sisto. Um, you know, Julie Brown is uh, hanging around as a uh, as as some kind of uh, uh, I think she's like a gym teacher. 
Uh, it's just, it is, you know, it's this, like, it's this incredible parade of pop culture references and should feel dated. And I don't know if I just have such an attachment to this movie, uh, because this is one of the one of the few that I did see in a theater when it came out, um, largely because I was seduced by its soundtrack. I thought, well, any movie that has Radiohead and Cracker and the Mighty Mighty Boss tones on its soundtrack, like that, <laughs> it obviously must be a modern classic. I don't know if I'm if I'm sort of clouded by that particular attachment, uh, but to me, this movie has aged incredibly well. Not only as a great time capsule of what life looked and sounded and felt like in 1995, um, but also as um, a kind of a sort of general reflection of teen culture and philosophy. I think, and it's and again, like Amy Heckerling is like not someone who's gotten it right very often but man when she hits she hits awfully hard uh and so clueless is my number one that's a great pick uh the the fashion in clueless is unmatched and yeah i agree amy heckerling doesn't always nail it but she's directed one of my favorite movies of all time in uh, fast times ridgemont high yeah and clueless definitely won me over this isn't one that i was interested in seeing when it came out in theaters because i was like you know 14 or whatever and uh just didn't have an interest in seeing it but later on when i was forced to watch it by somebody it was it goes down smooth it's a great movie uh and like you said all the side characters are great paul rudd donald Faison, who i'm a big fan of love seeing him in there rolling with the homies It's, it's a scene I'll, I'll never forget and always kind of makes me sad now because of what happened with Brittany Murphy later on. I know. All right. My number one is going to kind of go in a bit of a different direction from what I've had so far. But uh, this is one that I think is a pretty underrated movie. And this is uh, the second on my list of Dawson's Creek alumni. Before there were the plastics from Mean Girls, there were the Blue Ribbons. In 1998's Disturbing Behavior. Ooh, all right. Wow, Stevie boy. Appropriate sparks are flying. All of Rachel's friends are changing. Will you go out with me? No. With every kid, we are getting closer to perfection. Except one, and he's next. You signed me up for the program? Let's get out of here. Dawson Creek's Katie Holmes. Disturbing Behavior, rated R, starts Friday, July 24th at theaters everywhere. I love Disturbing Behavior. Katie Holmes. Yes, Katie Holmes, James Marsden's in this, Nick Stahl. You know, when you said 90s teen movies, I think you'd be hard-pressed to find a teen movie that's more 90s than this. There are some (laughs) 90s movies that remain timeless. This ain't one of them. Uh, And, you know, in the 90s, I loved The X-Files. Like I mentioned, I love Dawson's Creek, and this movie kind of combines those worlds. Uh, David Nutter was a director on The X-Files. He even, he did um, Millennium 2, and he brought in the the composer from X-Files and Millennium as well. So they had the music, they had the style. It's uh, about this dude, Steve Clark, played by James Marsden. He and his family move into this town of Cradle Bay out in the uh, Puget Sound in Washington, and uh, quickly realizes that there's something weird about some of the high school classmates. This clique known as the Blue Ribbons, they have like the letterman's jackets. They they have like this weird embodiment of academic excellence and clean living. But like the rest of the town, they're a little too perfect. 
So he uh, teams up with his friend Gavin, played by Nick Stahl, and they uh, bring in Rachel, played by Katie Holmes, and they search for the truth. It's got your really great scene where right when Steve gets to the school and sits down at lunch, uh, Nick Stahl and then this dude named UV, who's this albino guy who's like always high, they sit down with him and they start pointing out the stereotypical groups of people in the cafeteria. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, those are the motorheads, those are the nerds. And I will always love a movie when they have that scene in there. But just watching this recently, he you can just see like, oh, my God, there's so much 90s in this. There's a kid when he mentions the nerds, he points to the table with the nerds and there's a kid with one of those tiny computers on his books and he's playing like computerized chess. <laughs> I was just like, oh, that's so perfect. It was like a little like a starter laptop. Oh, man. Um, Jinko jeans and starter jackets all over the place. It's it's a wild movie. Like it's set in the Puget Sound in these islands. I've been to those islands. I can tell you there's nowhere on those islands that a high school like this would be. The high school here <laughs> must have had like thousands of kids walking through it. But of course, we only like pay attention to the 12 we're supposed to. Uh, speaking of how 90s it is, there's a scene in which Steve and Rachel go to visit this mental hospital. And when they're running out, it's set to the sound of Harvey Danger's flagpole sitta. Yes. Which is like, oh my gosh. I just, like, anytime that song plays, I'm going to pop. There's uh, <laughs> some 90s language in here that I just have never heard as a youth. Like you mentioned when you were talking about Clueless, the uh, the slang. Katie Holmes, when, when we meet her character, first off, she's dancing by herself provocatively in the bed of a truck yep. outside of her high school. Like you do. And, <laughs> like, like any normal kid would. And her friends walk up and they're like, hey, let's go downtown. And she says, yeah, sounds razor. Like razor <laughs> was this substitute for cool. I, I can tell you I've never heard that. But after I heard it in this movie, I'm about to start using it with my friends again. Oh, man. There's also like these crazy X-Files 90s graphics on screen whenever one of the blue ribbons gets horny because it's like when they get horny, they malfunction. The mystery itself is kind of like a Stepford's Wife kind of tale, but uh, it's a genuinely fun movie that it kind of loses some of its steam at the end, which is no fault of the directors. I actually got a chance to read the original script and uh, you can find that online by Scott Rosenberg. And the ending was like wildly different in the original screenplay and there was a lot more going on. Uh, with Steven's brother, played by Ethan Embry, who I had mentioned uh, earlier. Right. This is a movie that I just, I love for some reason. Bill Sadler's even in here, playing like a crazy rat-catching maintenance guy, who uh, <laughs> who just acts like he's mentally challenged, which is uh, really amusing. But it's, it's straight-up time capsule of 1998. And when you were like, 90s teen movies... I rewatched this to make sure that it that it did exactly what I thought it did, which was like be a time capsule of the late 90s. And it certainly did. So it deserves the number one spot on my list. It's funny that disturbing behavior, I feel like, got folded in at the time, maybe still does, with the wave of teen horror movies. Like a scream is what, 90, the end of 96? Yep. And then, and then so all of these kind of, you know, like this, the kind of the next teen horror movie wave, you know, happens in the next couple of years. Um, but a certain behavior to me has always been like, because it's not like, it's not trying to be meta. No. Um, in the way that a lot of those movies were. Um, it's just, it's just kind of a very well built thriller. I, I've always um, really appreciated and admired it. Um, I, I always love the fact that Katie Holmes 
always seemed to choose roles that went against type. You know, like, like she's so far away from Joey Potter in this movie in the same way that she is in the movie Go from, uh, from 99. Um, just, uh, uh, yeah, just, I, I, um, I did not consider disturbing behavior for my list, but now I kind of regret that I didn't because it's, you reminded <laughs> me that it is, it, it might not be the best movie of teen movie in the 90s, but it might be the most 90s of any movie we've talked about. 100%. That's that's literally why I had it at the top. I think you'll be hard-pressed to find a movie that screams 1998 as much as this one does. <laughs> Any uh, honorable mentions that you had that, that we didn't mention already? Uh, well, a couple of things that, like, I, I almost slipped Cruel Intentions in there because um, I've mm-hmm. always uh, really had a lot of um, admiration for that movie. Um, one of my, and then there were two movies that I, I initially had on my list that I, I both kind of rejected because they don't read as teen-ish as I wanted them to read. One of them is a movie from uh, from 95 called Empire Records. Oh, yeah, I love Empire Records. Another Ethan Embry movie. Another Ethan Embry movie, I know. Um, which, when you mentioned Ethan Embry before, I was like, oh, man, is he going to put Empire Records on his on his list? <laughs> um, it is, it's a movie that, like, I, I so, like, it I feels like they're very kind of, um, vague about it, but everyone seems to be either done with high school or about to be finished high school. Like the 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 things that they're tackling in that movie are much more adult. Um, that, that that read much more grown up in the same way that like I remember when Singles came out. That's what ninety two, and that was like marketed as this real like youth movie that like teens should go see, and like and they're not hiding it. Everyone in that movie's thirty. And like, <laughs> like they're they're talking about you know like you know like here Cedric has a miscarriage like there's all there's very adult things going on in the movie but that's not the point. Yeah. Um, the other movie that I considered that I also sort of rejected because even though it does take place entirely within the realm of high school, still feels uh, like for whatever reason not a teen movie to me, and that is uh, Scream, which is. You know, I think one of, I mean, it's the movie that, you know, revived the entire horror genre in the 90s. It's one of my favorite films in the 90s. Um, but for whatever reason, I, and I, maybe it is just that that weird bench test of, you know, does it feel like a teen movie? I mean, for whatever reason, it doesn't. Yeah, Scream's on my honorable mention list, too. And I felt the same way. Like, obviously, they're in high school. They have a conversation about the first killing Uh in high school, like before class, but to me, it just didn't seem like that kind of movie for me. So I didn't put it on there. I also had another one from the, uh, you were on screen drafts recently and had a dimension draft. And one that you talked about on that podcast was the faculty, which almost made my list. Classic, classic. And that, for what, again, that is a teen movie in a way that Scream isn't. I also had Cruel Intentions on mine. I actually did like full notes for uh, Cruel Intentions and knocked it off the list today. That was the that would have been my third Dawson's Creek alumni because Josh Jackson's in that for yeah. like five minutes. Like two scenes, yeah. Yep, and then uh, she's all that with uh, Freddie Prinze Jr. is your typical like turn the nerd to a prom queen type of movie. Uh, it just didn't have enough meat to stick on my list, and then finally. Uh, Pleasantville, which I think is a really underrated '90s movie, but just didn't have a spot for it. I like Pleasantville a lot. I actually, I rewatched that recently, and I had forgotten that it um, it does a lot of stuff that I really love. Yeah, it's actually seems more timely today with all of the um, political stuff in there yeah. for sure. 
Kyle Anderson, fantastic list. Thanks for joining me tonight. Uh, let's talk about more of your stuff. So what's coming up? Where can people find more of your stuff? What do you want people to see, watch, listen to? Uh, if you want to hear more of my voice talking about movies and music and television, I am on Entertainment Now on the SiriusXM app. If you are a SiriusXM subscriber, you have access to the app. We always tell people that because they think that it's it used to cost an extra thing and now it doesn't. And um, just a ton of podcasts, the aforementioned filmography. Uh, I do a music show called The Discography where I run through all of the studio albums of a given uh, band or artist. Uh, and coming up, in addition to all the regular shows we have, we also have a bunch of year-end celebration type stuff uh, so the best movies music and television of 2021 all broken down on special shows it's all on entertainment now search entertainment now on your sirius xm app and that is where you'll find me you can also uh hear me uh djing uh weekend mornings on uh, alt nation which is a sirius xm channel 36 Awesome. And where can people find you on social media? Oh, uh, I am uh, largely uh, not on social media, but if you'd like to reach out to me, I am on Twitter that I do check, you know, uh, regularly-ish. Uh, it's at Kyle is up. All right, there you go. So jump on to SiriusXM and listen to all Kyle has to offer. I know that I am excited about the year-end list coming up, so I will be sure to uh, to check yours out as well. Thanks again, Kyle, for coming on. We've got, wow, I can't believe we didn't have any crossover picks. So that's 10 awesome yeah. 90s teen films for people to check out. Yeah, I'm, I'm a little surprised too, but I am, uh, I'm, I'm very glad that we have a nice uh, uh, and, and a, a, a good balance, a bunch of different genres. I, I think it, it, this is a nice list. What's your favorite 90s teen film? Which ones did we leave off? Let us know on social media at Force5Pod on Twitter and Force5Podcast on Instagram. And your comment might just make it to the show. If you love the Force 5 podcast, make sure to rate us and review us on Spotify now because now you can rate podcasts on Spotify. So do me a favor there. And again, if you use Apple Podcasts, rate it there. Just rate it wherever you listen and tell your friends about it as well. Intro and outro bumpers today come courtesy of Nate Spears. The top five list bumper was produced by me with music from Audio Binger. Until next time, stay safe, stay sane, and go watch some teen films from the 90s. Force 5.